All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word to us, clearly written. Um, Lord, received by your church. Um, Lord, and uh, is our final authority in, in, in all of life. Father, we, we glory in that. We, we, we count it just an amazing blessing that you have bestowed that upon us that we might read, we might hear, we might, through the power of your Holy Spirit, understand, and that we might live it. Father, we, we come again this morning to the Sermon on the Mount, the most powerful message uh, in your words given in the New Testament. Father, we, we pray that we be able to, to hear, to understand, and Lord, to apply this to every aspect of our life, that we might glory, glory, give glory to you, for you and only you are do that glory. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, this morning we're going to continue uh, looking at the portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus counters the teaching of the Pharisees. And thus far we've looked at uh, Jesus' teaching on anger, lust, divorce, truthfulness. And in each instance, Jesus begins with either the words of the law from the Old Testament or the distortion of the law that had been taught by the Pharisees. And the formula is the same each time. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. What was said or what was taught may actually be close to or resemble the text of the law. The problem, though, in most instances was that the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees cared only about the letter of the law rather than the heart and the intent of it. And they could check off a box that would give them some semblance of righteousness from a human perspective while still being very far from the heart of God. To that, Jesus responds, but I say to you, in each instance, as the incarnate word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ authoritatively interprets the law in such a way that it goes much deeper than the teaching of of the religious leaders. And he exposits the text according to its original and true meaning. Again, as I've said in every message so far, and will next time too, Jesus is not adding to the Word of God. He is not adding to the Word of God. He's not giving some new meaning to the text that wasn't originally there. So in every instance, he's, what he's doing is he's explaining the law in a way that exposes the heart of God for his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount and for us. This is how we ought to live in obedience to God's commands. This morning, what we're going to do is move on to the subject of retaliation. And let me begin by reading the entire section, then we'll come back and look at the text in detail. So um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew 5, uh, verse 38, if you've not already done so, and uh, read along with me. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew uh, 5, 38 to 42. So due to our fallen natures, the tendency towards retaliation is part of the human condition. We have a natural inclination to hit back when we're harmed. We see it in the youngest of our children. Actually, I've seen it twice in the last two weeks with your children. (laughs) And mine are every bit as rowdy, Um, especially grandchildren. If a child takes a toy out of another child's hands, it's not uncommon to see a forceful response. Right? Usually, the toy will get ripped out of the first child's hand, and a punch or a kick will follow. And that child instinctively knows when the toy is taken that their rights have been violated. Right? They have been harmed. Their immediate reaction is to right that wrong. Take back the toy. And as parents, that's exactly how we would handle the situation if we witnessed it, right? We would take back the toy, give it to the first child, and explain, Joey was playing with it first. You may play with it when it's finished. The problem is it isn't about the toy. It's about the harm that's caused when it was taken. That's why the punches and the kicks follow. The child wouldn't be able to explain it to us, but that's exactly what's going on in their mind. I've been violated, therefore I lash out. Right? We see this. Newton's uh, third law of motion states, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And that not only works in physics, but it also works in human interactions. The difference is that human interactions are so corrupted due to our fallen natures that we can usually throw out the word equal. For every action, there is an opposite reaction. The reaction is often anything but equal and will include an escalation. We not only see this on display with our children, but surely we see this in ourselves. Surely we see this in ourselves. When we're physically harmed, our tendency is to strike back with greater force. When we're emotionally harmed, our desire is usually to exact our revenge. Culturally, we see it in our politicians. Verbal attacks are usually responded to with an escalated counterattack that seeks to do even more damage, and often does. The back and forth interactions are exhausting. And that's not an indictment on any particular party or individual politician but it is an indictment on the human condition. It is. Katie and I were at uh, the Answers in Genesis Women's Conference um, the last three days, four days, three days. And um, one of the speakers was Heidi St. John. I did not hear this. Katie relayed it to me, so maybe I'll miss parts of it. But uh, she's a uh, speaker, blogger. She was one of the speakers for the event. She ran for Congress. And uh, one day she comes out of her home and a a bottle of alcohol had been crashed um, on her mailbox and the brand on the bottle was retribution. She said she just wanted to go back in the house and go to bed, you know. 
But that's the back and forth that we experience in our culture, not just politicians, but we see it in our culture. And it's, again, it's an indictment on the human condition. Our natural bent is to retaliate when we're harmed. And more often than not, that retaliation includes an escalation in force. That's why God institutes the Old Testament laws in order to protect against that inclination. In the same way that God allowed divorce, and I mentioned this several messages ago, because of man's hardness of heart, he also gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from man's evil heart. Now that quote is attributed to Piper, but I I have to confess I was unable to determine through my study whether or not that was John Piper or a different Piper. Either way, the quote's important. Let me read it again. God gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from man's evil heart. That legal regulation is spoken by Jesus in verse 38 and is pulled as a direct quote from three different passages in the Old Testament. Jesus begins with the words, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he accurately cites the Old Testament law and according to the letter, letter only, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. The text that that's pulled from is Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25, focusing especially on verse 24. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And that teaching is echoed in Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, which reads, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Um, and then finally, Deuteronomy 19.21, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. But the key to understanding the text is to realize that the context for what's called lex talionis, which is Latin for retribution in kind, is the judicial legal system. It's the judicial legal system, not a license for personal retaliation. The Old Testament expressly forbade that sort of vengeance. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.18. So it was the legal system, the legal system, that was to administer an eye for an eye and no more. Or a tooth for a tooth and no more. And the intent of God's design for this system was twofold. Number one, to serve as a hedge against personal vengeance and retaliation. And God's system pulled the retribution out of the hands of the individual and placed it in the hands of the court. And number two, the second reason was to see it, see to it that the punishment enacted would match the crime. No more 
no less. Our entire legal system is based upon the concept of equal justice under the law. The penalty imposed by the judge should match the crime, and that should be imposed without prejudice or favoritism. Now granted, with our fallen nature, we've corrupted that too. Still, God's design is good. Our implementation of that design, perhaps not so much. So while the scribes and the Pharisees had the text of the law correct, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, their reading of it flipped the meaning on its head. Okay, basically what they did is they turned a, a negative injunction that was meant to curb retaliation into a positive one that mandated it. You get that? A positive one that mandated it. In other words, they said one must take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. For them, it was something to be insisted upon rather than something which should be restrained. And not only that, they made it a matter of personal application. This so-called justice was being carried out by themselves rather than being carried out by the appointed judges who were responsible for law and order. Okay, they not only mandated it, but they took it upon themselves to execute it. And it's to that error that Jesus speaks when he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, verse 39. And then he goes on from verse 39, he gives to give us four examples um, from verses 39 to 42. And we're going to take each one in turn. But before we do, I want to look at a few overarching ideas. And we're going to look at the four examples. First, one, first overarching idea is this. Um, this question. What is Jesus' point in teaching this portion of the Sermon on the Mount? Why does he, why does he share this with us? What, what, is his, his, what is he getting at? And certainly the obvious point is non-retaliation. Right? If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your tunic, give him your cloak. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And this jumps out of the text, right? And if we ended there, we would end at a pretty good place. But I don't want to see us exchange one set of laws for another. Nor do I want us to fall into the legalistic mindset of the Pharisees. The fourth example Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 42. Doesn't seem to fit with the theme of non-retaliation. Maybe there's something deeper here that would tie all those threads together, and I believe there is. Okay? Our inclination toward retaliation is rooted in an elevated view of self. And I believe how we view ourselves is the underlying theme. How we view ourselves. We're harmed in some way, perhaps physically, emotionally, the loss of possessions, harm to our reputation, much more. And we feel that our rights have been violated. And our sense of justice just wells up within us. And our tendency is first to make it right and fair, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And our sinfulness tends to escalate our retaliation so that justice is served, at least to our satisfaction. Again, making it about us. 
our satisfaction. But Jesus' words and his four examples make it clear that it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your rights. It's not about your sense of fairness or justice. What Jesus is teaching is a much higher kingdom standard, one that doesn't demand one's rights. Which leads to the second question. If Christ is teaching a higher kingdom principle, then how are we to live accordingly? If this is what he's teaching, how are we to live it out? Right? The answer to that question can be found in the word kingdom. The principles that Jesus is teaching here are not for the world. They're not for the world. They are not for the unredeemed. They are not for those who find themselves currently outside of the kingdom of God. Rather, the kingdom principle that Jesus is teaching here is specifically for those who through faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation are adopted as sons and daughters of God and therefore members of his kingdom. We began this series about a year and a half ago. I moved pretty slow. At the beginning of chapter 5, talking about the Beatitudes. And the sermon title for those several messages that I did on the, on the Beatitudes, um, the, the title was Characteristics of the Blessed. Characteristics of the Blessed. The point of those messages was that it wasn't about what we do that makes us blessed. It's about who we are. It's about who we are. We live out certain characteristics in our lives as a direct result of the change and the transformation that takes place within us through our salvation and our ongoing sanctification as we conform more and more to the image of Christ. And the people of God, those whom Jesus calls blessed, are described as poor in spirit. That's where he begins. In other words, they are perfectly aware of their own utter inability. We talked about all these things. They are aware of the fact that they are sinners and are absolutely helpless in the sight of God. There are those who are mourning because of their sins. They have come to understand sin as a principle within them that impacts the whole of their lives, and they mourn because of it. They're meek. They have a spirit in them that stands against the spirit of the world. They're hungering and thirsting after righteousness and on and on. And those principles that Jesus is teaching here are meant for those individuals who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live transformed lives and to glorify his name. They're not meant for the world. They're not meant for the world. Those who are poor in spirit, by definition, do not have an elevated view of themselves. They do not demand their own rights. They do not demand what they feel they deserve, for they recognize that they do not deserve anything on their own merit. They recognize their total inability before Christ. The natural man outside of Christ cannot live that life. 
nor the principles that Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, for it's impossible to them. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8, 7. And that man remains under the law. And the law states an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And until a man comes under grace, he must be kept under the law. These people are still under that justice which restrains and holds man back, preserving law and order and controlling excesses, but not so for the people of God. In the world, that system of justice rightly executed, is a gift from God. It's a gift from God that affects both those under, those who are redeemed and those who are not. All right, so with that foundation, let's turn to the specific illustrations that Jesus uses to demonstrate the principles. The first can be found in verse 39. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And some translations say an evil person, others say an evildoer, and this applies specifically to matters of personal retaliation. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Not to criminal offenses, acts of military aggression, does not imply pacifism, which can be easily refuted from other scriptures. This has been used to to tout that, that worldview very easy to refute. What Jesus is specifically prohibiting is the human tendency to seek personal revenge. Okay? The first example cites an evil person who slaps you on the right cheek. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus speaks with that level of specificity. Why does he point out the right cheek? According to a study published by Psychology Today in 2019, Left-handers only make up 9.2% of the world's population. If you are left-handed, raise your left hand. All right, yeah, left hand, that, the other left hand, Harold, there you go. All right, very good. All right, so 9.2% of the world's population. So if a right-hander, which makes up the other 90.8% of us, strikes someone on the right cheek, he's going to need to do it with the back of his hand, Okay. Now, the scripture doesn't say this is a right-handed dude, you know, slapping him. But if it is, he's going to need to do it with the back of his hand in order to hit the right cheek. The bones on the back of the hand are going to deliver a much more painful blow than the fleshy palm of an open hand. This will not, but this will not only be a strike that delivers physical pain. The physical pain isn't the point. It's also given as an insult or an affront to one's dignity. To slap someone in the face, even in Bible times, which took um, personal dignity, much held it at a much higher level than we do today, was considered a serious offense. In fact, it would be you know double restitution for you to. For and uh, um, Second Corinthians eleven twenty says, "For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face." It's a serious affront, offense. And when this kind of attack takes place, everything in us wants to respond, doesn't it? To slap back, to make it even, to make it right, to get justice. 
not only have we received physical injury, but we've also suffered, suffered damage to our honor. Jesus says no. He says no. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The disciples of Christ is not to retaliate in order to assert his own rights or self-interest. Rather, the disciple of Christ is to brace himself for the next blow. And if necessary, we are to endure the insult again. To return an insulting slap would escalate the violence. That doesn't prohibit self-defense in a more serious attack, nor does it preclude fleeing from evil. There, there are scriptures that definitely address this. What it addresses is the affront to our honor and our natural inclination to retaliate. Second example, Jesus' command to not resist the evil one, or, or one who is evil, extends not only to our physical well-being and our honor, but it also extends to our personal assets and property. It extends to our security. Verse 40, Jesus cites a court case where the plaintiff is suing a defendant for his tunic. In our modern uh, era, that sounds ridiculous. But in the time of Christ, it was anything but ridiculous. Jewish law permitted an opponent to sue for possession of of an offender's inner garment, his tunic, the shirt, the tunic. And typically it was a sleeve tunic that extended to the ankles and was made of wool or linen. And these could be valuable. They could be very valuable and were frequently used for bartering or making payments. Let me add also that there are clues in the text, if we're paying attention, that imply that the plaintiff will win the case. Okay? and take possession of the tunic. In other words, he has a legitimate case where restitution will need to be made, where restitution ought to be made. But Jesus says to not only let him have the tunic, but to let him have your cloak as well. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And while someone could sue for the inner garment, they could not, by law, sue for one's outer garment. This was expressly forbidden in the, in the Old, Testament, Old Testament on humanitarian grounds. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Exodus 22, 25 to 27. And then again, and if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 12 to 13. So what an opponent could not have dared to claim in court, the disciple was to offer freely, even at the cost of leaving himself with nothing to wear or to keep him warm at night. Does that stand in opposition to the attitudes of the world? 
Third example, given in verse 41, focuses on infringement of one's liberty. Jesus said, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This refers in context to the Roman practice of compulsion, in which officials could force their subjects to perform menial tasks such as hauling a load on their backs. Soldiers could legally compel a subject, grab somebody along the road, carry my load for one mile in the opposite direction that I was heading, right? And they could carry that for one mile before letting him go. Perfect example that we know from Scripture is uh, Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross on his back, Matthew 27, 32. That falls under that policy of compulsion. And not only is the disciple to accept this indignity and violation against their personal liberty, okay, I mean, think of some of the, you know, without giving all the cultural examples we have right now, where we feel our, our justice welling up in us because our liberties are being curtailed, okay, go there. Jesus says, go with them two miles. Don't just go one mile. Go with them two miles. Go above and beyond. Do more than what is expected. Volunteer for a double stint. Jesus' disciples should carry their oppressor's pack out of obligation for the first mile, but then exceed all expectations by going a second mile as an act of love and service. To do that for anyone would be remarkable. But to do it for the enemy was unheard of. And this not only serves to illustrate, um, to not only serves to illustrate Jesus' demand to renounce our rights, but also prepares us for, for what will come the next time I preach in the next section where he says, to love one's enemies, verse 44. That's a preview of what's coming. One of the many blessings that I have with the organization that I work for is that we can teach business principles based upon biblical principles. Second mile mentality is likely taught in many of your companies, and it should be. The difference is I get to teach where it comes from, right? And this idea of going the second mile stands as the foundation of everything we teach in our ministry on, about customer service. And more than that, more than just a, a model for customer service, it should be a model um, as Christians. It should be a way of life. As Christians, we should always strive to go above and beyond when serving others. Not just our friends, but even our enemies. Let that be our testimony. Let that be our testimony. Fourth example that Jesus gives extends to our property rights. He says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you, Matthew 5, 42. And while this doesn't seem on the surface to be a violation of rights, it is. It is. Jesus is asking us to do something that is not in our normal nature to do. He's asking us to give 
where we often don't want to give. It gets to the heart of how we view ourselves and our own rights. We love our stuff. We love our possessions. And this is a more everyday situation, right? A request for money or goods, whether from a neighbor or a beggar. And Jesus' comprehensive wording that he does that he uses, does not allow us the luxury of distinguishing between the two. He says, give to the one who begs. No differentiation. Do not refuse the one who would borrow. No differentiation. The word give is unqualified. Jesus looks for generosity without condition. We're to give as we are able to to, to all who ask. This command, similar to the provisions made for the poor in the Old Testament, says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near. And you, your, your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you, when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 11. Christians should help those who are truly needy and those, therefore, those who ask. But at the same time, we're not required to give foolishly. Matthew 7, 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Nor are we to give to a lazy person who is not in need. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Still, and this is really important, our thoughts should not run first to the exceptions. Our thoughts should run to the kingdom principle that Jesus is declaring. Our first instinct should be to put others before ourselves. Our attitude should be one that gives generously with an open hand because God has given to us. And we should see ourselves as stewards of his resources, not as protectors of our stuff. If our mind goes first, hear this, if our mind goes first to the exceptions either in this example or in the others, then I would argue that perhaps we're missing Jesus' point. All right? You know, all of these historically, I'm off notes now, all of these historically have been thrown up to attack Christianity as being unworkable, unreasonable. Um, the, The idea that I talked about of pacifism and and, you know, if, I mean, if you were to give to everyone that, that asked, is that even doable for the Christian for more than a day and a half? Probably not. But again, the, the point is the attitude 
of selflessness that Jesus is calling for. That I'm, it's not one of me demanding my rights in any of these situations, whether it be personal vengeance, whether it be um, my own security, whether it be um, um, you know, any number of these, uh, my liberties. It's not that. It's I should see myself in such a way that I see others as greater and their need as greater. That's what Jesus is saying. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So taken together, all of these examples challenge us to behavior that's contrary to our human nature. Every one of them seems crazy to a secular world. The world tells us to stand up and to fight for our rights. In fact, the one who does is seen as a role model. Someone slaps you in the face, slap back. Someone takes you to court, fight for your rights and give up as little as possible in the decision. Someone infringes on your liberty, push back. If someone's in need, you be sure to hold on to what you have earned. The point that these examples are making is that in the kingdom of heaven, self-interest does not rule. And even our legal rights and legitimate expectations might have to give way to the interest of others. As disciples, we need to, to work out for ourselves how this principle can most responsibly be applied in the different personal and social circumstances in which we find ourselves. But again, don't run first to the exceptions. We should exhibit the attitude of Christ that the Apostle Paul describes in the book of Philippians when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Philippians 2, 3-4. The world lives under the restraining law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the disciples of Christ are to live according to a higher kingdom principle. Principle that has a realistic view of ourself and therefore does not demand one's own rights. So doing, we model the attitude of Christ to a watching world. Let's pray. Father, these concepts stand in such opposition to the thoughts of this world. The words of your son Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount would have been shocking to those who were in attendance. And they're shocking to us as well. Because everything in us wants to hold on to our rights, be it our dignity, our security, our liberty, our money. Father, we want to hold on to what we think we have earned and what we think we are due. But Lord, that's not what you call us to. You call us to put others before ourselves. You, you call us to give in ways that we don't expect to give to bend in ways that we don't expect to bend. And that every aspect of that, Lord, is a testimony 
to a world that so desperately needs you and so desperately needs to see what is different. In every one of these cases, the world can look and say, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Why doesn't he or she stand up for what is right? Yet when they see us, my prayer more than anything else would be that they see you. That they see there is a different principle at work in the kingdom of God. And let, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, they would be drawn into that kingdom through the preaching of your word. Lord, be it from a pulpit or whether it be as we spread the Great Commission. Father, that's our, that's our prayer. Lord, we pray that you would use this in our lives. Help us to resist the self-interest that well up inside us, knowing um, what it is that you have called us to. Lord, may we be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.